Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is The Point of Relation. Our guest for today's episode is William Urey. William Urey is one of the world's leading experts on negotiation and mediation, co-founder of Harvard's program on negotiation, and a best-selling author. Over the past 35 years, he has served as a negotiation advisor and mediator in conflicts from ethnic wars in the Middle East, the Balkans, and former Soviet Union, and most recently, in Colombia. We hope you enjoy this conversation. William, we are back here today after almost a year past. Uh, our first conversation um, happened it was amazing. We were in such a flow and we were talking about how we put ourselves into the shoes of uh, other people, how we are our own enemy. And like we were in a deep conversation, we brought in trauma and talked about the recurrent effects of trauma. What happened at the same time was that I was sitting in a sound studio in the basement of a building that was soundproof. And during our conversation, there was a 40 minutes missile attack on Tel Aviv with many, many missiles, many, uh, I don't know, Iron Dome missiles catching them. And so, and while we were talking, I had a strange feeling, but I didn't hear anything. So there was no way to know. So we continued with our conversation. And then um, just at the end, I found out that what's happening. And then there was a like a two-week war, basically. And so we, we are resuming our, our conversation today. So first of all, I'm happy that we are here together again. And at the same time, right now, there is another war. And uh, so Russia and Ukraine are uh, at war. So I would love to... to maybe make a transition with you from our last conversation to this conversation and see, first of all, how you are, and, and then let's uh, see how we dive deeper into our current situation. Yeah, it's really, really good to see you again, Thomas. And it's just very curious how that first podcast, we were talking about the very phenomenon of war and the trauma from which war arises, and then suddenly there's a missile attack. And now we're resuming the podcast that was interrupted in the middle of another war that's affecting, I think everyone around the planet is paying attention to this war. It's like, I can feel the kind of collective, I'm getting messages from Brazil, from just Africa. Everyone is, this is like, everyone is, somehow part of this, the whole collective human nervous system, and I can feel it myself. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm asking this question of what, what can be done in the midst of this trauma-induced war. And I'm, I'm aware of having been to Ukraine and been to Russia many times, sometimes a long time ago, and having gone through the Cold War and now this strange resonance of another Cold War looming with the risk of nuclear war. It's, uh, I'm, I'm studying the way in which my own system is 
profoundly unsettled by this. And maybe we talk about this because um, like last time when I came out from that basement um, and I and I understood like I came out and there was immediately to feel that the whole atmosphere had changed because it was unexpected. It was not, uh, you know, that we knew that that's going to come like the like it was unexpected and and I could feel like I'm coming out of the <laughs> conversation into like a different Tel Aviv. And um, and I think maybe we can talk a little bit about also that the like how important it is to relate to how that affects us and not just uh, try to not have it, but to talk about it. Because for example, at that time, it's very clear that even if there's a security system or like a missile deflection or defense system, still it's like an attack on, on life and potentially on your life, even if it's not happening. And the collective fear that's rising immediately, like there's a collective quality suddenly in the air and um and and also when i now when i woke up that morning i had a very strange feeling like when i woke up and then i later i opened the news and i saw what was happening but the shock of um like an invasion and and the and the human catastrophe of war like the human side of it like I I feel it deeply, like every day when when that's happening. And I'm curious also how how you first before we go into the mechanics of it, like how how that affects you. And I know you were very active also in the Cold War, so there's like something emerging. And and for everybody like myself, every you know European citizen, the Second World War is starting to resonate in the you know collective unconscious very strongly and millions of people feel it so maybe we start with the personal feeling a bit and then go into the mechanics maybe of what we can do and see i really uh appreciate that thomas that opportunity because it's uh you know as we've talked in our previous conversations you know <laughs> any war anywhere around the world is us, right? And um, because there's this profound interconnection of humanity at, at both in material levels, but at subtle levels. And so I can just, inside of me, it just brings me back biographically to growing up in Europe. I grew up, I spent half my childhood in Switzerland at the after not that long after world war ii and i could feel i just remember as a child feeling world war one world war ii you could still see ruins and i traveled around france or germany or italy or yugoslavia buildings were still in ruins um it wasn't like the europe of today and there was every expectation that World War One, World War Two, that there would be World War Three, and every building in Switzerland had a nuclear bomb shelter, and that's you know, and I went into it almost you know, like that's where you kept your skis. And that's so I I was in there, and and it just felt like, um, as a boy, I remember thinking, there has to be some better way for humans to deal with our differences than, than this. And that's really what set me on my course till today. So for me, then I worked as a young man and I spent 10 years working on the Cold War. That's really what I wanted to work on was how do we reduce the risk of a nuclear war, which would snuff off tens, hundreds of millions of lives and possibly put an end to life on earth as we know it. And, uh, and I, so for me, there's a, there's some kind of resonance. Also, I have ancestry that goes back to Ukraine. And so I'm just aware of just all the threads of my life that are entwined in this particular um, situation 
right now and the tragedy of it and also just aware of the so in my body i can just going very personally i can i can feel um anxiety arising um fear and i've just been learning how anxiety and fear actually have different almost neural networks you know fear is fear of the outside but anxiety is kind of almost like a fear of the inside of what's going on inside me. So I can feel it. Um, and of course, all this, the, the news and the social media, just the immediate kind of empathy with people who are suffering and caught, you know, as missiles are striking or they're fleeing, the fear, the panic, it, uh, it's, it's unsettling. And so it, it's really calling upon me to like, address my own nervous system so that I can be available to be of assistance in the larger in the larger phenomenon right now that's going on and uh, and for me what I've always found is the best antidote to that kind of anxiety is is conscious action is to move into action to to engage in the phenomenon actually not to move away from it but to move towards it and that's what i find myself doing is asking this question of how can i how can i how can we witness this you know in your terms and then how can i be of assistance beautiful yeah i love that you're so refined in your introspection like to that because i the way i look at this is like there are multiple layers i would love to talk with you about and and one is that you started already to describe how the the layers of the collective trauma of the Second World War, for example, starts to resonate within many of us now when the new war in Europe hits, which is intertwined. They are connected, obviously. And, and, and how refined we can look at our, like how the archaeology of our own past, like your Ukrainian ancestors or my Austrian ancestors, and you know, how your the the culture that we grew up in like i also felt as a boy in vienna this kind of strange dead atmosphere that some places had or the the, the kind of the collective had in a certain way where today i look at this very like i understand this very differently but at that time i just felt oh life feels that way that's how life is but not that how much energy and how much um, pain is stored in between us that we don't even know about that that's there and i think your refined description is a very great example how like not neglecting what comes up in us but allowing it to to get digested and i think as collectives we don't have we have little competence in or training because we didn't get trained in that how we digest that material that comes up in order to be able to respond in a different way and not just be part of a fragmentation, a very strong othering and like a very strong deflection of the moment, but to be able to respond to it. And when I listen to you, I, I, I hear a lot of, I need to do my inner work also, and it's not opposing me acting, like that they can be in parallel, that we can do both and not just one or the other because sometimes there is a bit of a cynicism in in activism that inner work like doing one's inner work that comes up is kind of just wasting time not to act and i think that it's very important that they belong together i think that makes us more effective i couldn't agree more that's been my whole experience is uh that the foundation of constructive bridge building is first going to the balcony you know using that metaphor of like of like pausing silence and then really zooming in and asking what's going on inside of me and and zooming in what what's really called for here what's really wanted here what what, what, what do we really want and then on that basis then from a balcony perspective to zoom out and see the larger picture as if it's a if it's just a drama on the stage you know you're on the balcony overlooking the stage and 
understand the different characters on the stage of which I'm one, you know, we are all part, we are all on that stage. But then you look at the main characters and then you zoom in, you listen to them. But it all comes, if you don't start by listening to yourself, you don't have the emotional, mental space to truly listen to the other. And only by listening to others do we have a whisper of a chance of finding a better way out of the situation. I, I very much agree. And um, and that brings me to the, to the next step. So there's my personal inner work and that enables me to also feel my authentic contribution and not the contribution that like out of panic, like but out of, of a kind of an inner responsiveness. The, the other one is that I'm able to put myself into your shoes or anybody's shoes that is a player in a conflict. And I think it also enables us to see, wow, many feelings that we are having right now, they are actually non I, 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 I look at life in like two different types of processes. One process is emergent, creative, relational, and connected. Another type of process is, is non-emergent, repetitive, disrelated, and distant. That has a lack of care, has a lack of responsiveness. So in when I look at society, then we see, okay, there is... Um, there is the world that is emerging, that is related. These are real structures of life that are evolving. But then there are many processes that are just repetitive. They are repetitions of the past. We are repeating those conversations, small conflicts, big conflicts, all kinds of issues, behavior patterns, addictions, whatever, again and again and again and again. And I'm wondering, because I feel that this is a massive wake-up call for us to understand we cannot, as states, as the world, have no process in place to do our restorative work. You know, if there's racism, if there's colonialism, if there is the Second World War, the First World War, the Cold War, whatever it is, East-West separation, like how do we, how do we restore those massive impacts in order not to have to go through that experience again? We know that from the trauma science, there's a repetition compulsion to trauma. And um, so I would love to he first hear from you a little bit about that, and then maybe also about your experience later of your work today. That resonates deeply what you're saying. Um, it's almost as if um, I've been talking to a friend of mine who's a neuroscientist, but there's a you know, there's the left feeling part of the brain, which is the reactive mind, which is just, as you mentioned, it's kind of repetitive. It's, it's designed to protect us, right? It's there. It was, it was, it, it evolved to protect us. And my experience in, um, in conflict that it's fear-based and it's protective and it has its role. It's not, it's not, there's nothing wrong with it. It has its role. It has its own intelligence. And at the same time, in these complex conflicts between human beings at this time, that reactive mind leads us in ways that go directly contrary to what we truly want. Um, as uh, the saying goes, when angry, you will give the best speech you will ever regret. And you know, when fearful, you will take the actions that you will that will not lead you in the direction of wholeness, of connectedness, of peace, of security, of all the things that we want. And uh, and it feels like we're caught in this dilemma of two, you know, reactive minds trigger reactive minds and. We know how that goes, as you know, Gandhi put it so long ago, he said, an eye for an eye, and we all go blind. And that's what's happening is, <laughs> I see this happening again and again, is that the truth is, no one wins these wars. Um, you know, you can win a battle, of course, with superior force, 
but everybody loses the war. That's, that's been my experience 45 years as a wandering anthropologist, all the different war zones. I've yet to see a war that someone really wins. They may think they win because they win the battles, but then in the long run, everybody loses. And the whole secret, even just going back to the brain, is, you know, when I say go to the balcony, it means activating the part of the brain that's generally located on the right side. And that actually is the part that's aware, that's that, you know, where there's awareness and which is connected, right? The, this, uh, this part of the brain is disconnected. It's protect, you know, it's everything is separate, every, you know, and everything is a potential threat. And, and what, what we're called upon to do is to shift from this left feeling part of the brain to the right, it's a right thinking part of the brain, but it's a right seeing, you know, awareness that then can then come back and take care and listen to the, it's not like you just, oh, this is right, you know, this is, this is, this is not good. No, you come back and you embrace the part of all the parts of us, including the part of us that feels scared, that feels fearful, that sees a world in which everyone is separate, that there isn't enough to go around, that you're a danger to me. And so the question is, how do we make that shift um, individually and then collectively so that we can create the world that we all want for ourselves and for our children and our grandchildren? And that, that's to me the, the challenge right now. And, and then very specifically, you take it into a specific moment like this moment with the war between Russia and Ukraine and it's so easy to see these dynamics of good versus evil, um, you know, uh, you know, you know, just you just see this reactive, but we know how it ends. We all know how the story ends. It ends with everyone losing unless we can do the deep work that you work on of bringing the unconscious, making it conscious, bringing internal compassion to our own feelings and then bring it to those that we deal with and slowly transforming the situation. And we have historical examples that this is not just uh, kind of like pie in the sky. I mean, if we look at the, the history of the last century, you know, you have examples where like, uh, you know, we got into World War I and I mean, it was like the craziest war. And at the end of World War I, what happened was, there was a punitive peace on Germany and the seeds were laid for World War II. There was just a brief interlude. I mean, World War I and World War II are really just one war. We missed that opportunity. And then at the end of World War II, there was a, a more intelligent response which let's embrace the enemies. And so you have the, the, the paradox that, that the two losers of World War II Germany and Japan became the two economic success stories because they were embraced in the urban community. We embraced, we created, a, we created an interconnected network. And unfortunately, at the end of the Cold War, we made the same mistake that we made at the end of World War I, which was that we didn't embrace Russia. And now we're faced with the consequences of it, but it's not too late. We, we, I mean, it's hard, it's incredibly hard, but we have that same opportunity to create a world in which we're interconnected with Russia, with China, with the US, that it's an interconnected humanity that can deal with even the hardest differences that can then create, you know, the security, the identity, the recognition, and, you know, deal with the problems that we have with climate we can all, it's like we have door number A and door number B. Do you wanna go down this path towards a world in which everyone is unsafe and there isn't enough and the climate, or do we wanna go down door B? And it feels to me we're at this moment of intense crisis, but also a moment when there's an opportunity to wake up and say, let's start to create the world that we do want even in the midst of this tragedy that's going on today. Maybe you can speak a bit more to how you see like what has been missed after the Cold War and what could we have done 
like a little bit more in detail in order to avoid the avoid like to not have this come into this situation now yeah um it's very sad but it's really important to go back and and learn these lessons but at the end of the cold war um there was a kind of triumphalism like we won we won the cold war that's not actually true um the west won the cold war and the berlin wall came down and and there was an opportunity when if you put yourself in the shoes of the russians and all the peoples of the former soviet union it was humiliating uh and it was not just humiliating to go from being you know there are two great powers of the world to being you know weak but it but people were on the streets begging the economy was destroyed the uh there it just this the the sense of um in those years in moscow there was a fear that civil war would break out and and we had a chance we i mean the west had a chance to really reach out and embrace the way that was done with germany or japan and embrace the former adversary and help them to their feet really instead what did what did we choose to do the wisest people among us the ones who really knew the soviet union said do not take advantage of russia why it's down do not expand nato right up to the borders of russia understanding russian history understanding the sensitivities that russia had been invaded so many times from the west by the swedes by the poles by napoleon by the germans twice you know they have this insecurity they have this trauma don't don't but embrace them uh, have i don't know russia become part of nato have just create an interconnected european security architecture and economic architecture that embraces and instead what did we do we expanded nato kept on expanding it poland hungary czech republic slovakia all the way and then offering nato membership to ukraine which so it's like it's like it's like we we humiliated russia and we don't see that we humiliated them and then you created uh, yeltsin felt so this that he he handed power to putin as a man who could restore order and make russia strong again and that's what, that was his mandate it was very popular and so we don't realize how we created the phenomenon now that we that we're facing now but what we're facing today there were many people including the, the people who knew the soviet union best who said back in 1990s if you make these moves you will regret this day and now we're at this day and now we say oh those are the bad people whatever you know but we have no sense of our own history of our own co-responsibility co-creation of this phenomenon that's not to say that it's not in any way to justify what's just happened now in terms of the invasion that's a that's also a reactive behavior that is is exactly opposite to its own and you know you know putin may win a battle but he's already lost the war he's made the biggest mistake you know he's made, he's fallen into that reactive trap but if we're going to deal with this we need to deal with it from a point of view of empathy and understand empathy for ourselves empathy for the others and understanding how we're part of this play it's not just that oh we're the innocent ones here beautiful william amazing this was so important uh how you detailed the process and like from a collective trauma perspective we could say that the absence that's needed in order not to feel that that's our job mm -hmm. the absence in in the western countries that is not aware of what you said that's what we need to take care of you know that happened for a reason like we weren't we like when when we say that the western countries weren't aware of that what you said enough and that has a reason that's a process 
And to look at that process, we have to do urgently. Even while, while that's happening, what's happening? Because it has a reason why we didn't come with more compassion, more support, more like, why did that not happen? Yeah. And, and I think it's a, we can say on the one end, it's a missed opportunity, but it's also, it's in it on a deeper level, it's an absence that is lacking relation because otherwise that would have happened. That's true. So that's the that's part of the collective trauma reenactment because it it reenacts itself step by step. It's not just like the, the the monster comes out of the lake and is suddenly here. There it it built itself over years. And and I think that's such a like what you said is so important because it's so important to like it's so easy to fall back into the same polarization and othering that anyway led up to the situation now. So who are, what, what happens to the collective immune system? And we were talking in other conversations about the, how the collective immune system needs to embrace this situation. Like actually how the whole world needs to stand up or get up and be there. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit to maybe two things like what, what is like what do you see is your part to contribute to this situation and maybe if that's okay and maybe also what's how how do we activate the global immune response in a way that is really constructive and not part of the destruction yeah it's a good it's a really good question uh, and i'll just say too that you know the other path is, was available to us. I mean, you know, I remember Russia in the early 90s, we were talking about where's the Marshall Plan? You know, where is, where is you know, the Marshall Plan that brought Europe to its feet again uh, in the wake of, you know, the ruins of the Cold War? Where was the really helping, you know? And, you know, the European community was like born of like, the, you know, France and Germany had fought each other three times in the previous 75 years. There wasn't a family in France or Germany that hadn't lost a member. And, and, and what are we gonna do? Are we gonna just repeat the same pattern that, you know, from World War One and, and where was, no, we're gonna break the pattern. We're gonna make, now France and Germany are the closest of allies. And if, you know, before, if someone wanted, you know, a German wanted to, you know, have land in France, you conquer. No, no, you just go buy a, a little apartment in Paris or Alsace or whatever. You know, they're interconnected. And that's 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 the path forward. So now, now we're faced with this, which is really sad because we lost a major opportunity. But the truth is it's never too late to learn. And right now, this should wake us up to learn that the the only uh, the only skillful um, response to exclusion, you know, we, we kind of excluded Russia. Um, and what do we get back? We get exclusion, of course, right? Exclusion breeds exclusion. And so right now, Russia, Putin, they've invaded, that's an exclusive move. And so we're just excluding them, you know, get them out of the, you know, sanctions, you know, militarize Europe again or whatever. But we know where that leads. The only, the only skillful way in the long run is you may have to take those kinds of measures. I'm not even saying that you don't. But the, but, but the larger strategy has to be a strategy of inclusion. You know, it's like that, that uh, poem that I've shared with you before is like, you know, they drew a circle, they drew a circle and shut me out you know, a rebel, a heretic, a thing to flout, to whip. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle and took them in. So the only, the only remedy, effective remedy for when the other side shuts you out is you have, we have to create a wider inclusion. Now, is that gonna be easy? This is the hardest work that human beings can do. It's extremely hard, but right now this is what I'm devoting myself to is it's not, we have to bring an end as soon as possible. 
and stop the war in Ukraine. But it's but I've I've been in so many wars. You have a ceasefire. You know, living where you are, you know, you have a ceasefire. It breaks. It breaks. It breaks. You know, unless that is embedded in a larger vision of mutual benefit, of mutual security, it's very unstable. And so we need to create a vision in which every country in Europe, including Russia, including Ukraine, has security, has a sense of safety, has a sense of sovereignty, has a sense of identity. Is it possible? We just saw it happen at the end of World War II with France and Germany and all the other, all the other countries there. It can happen again here. And not only this time, it has to happen globally because now everything is interconnected. It happens, has to happen with China because now we're facing a possibility where we go into a Cold War with Russia and a Cold War with China. And then we have these three great powers, you know, Russia, China, and the West, all competing with each other, all with nuclear weapons. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a world. Uh, it's a dystopia. And in fact, we we have the opportunity now to wake up and realize we're all. We have to kind of find a way to interconnect. We're always going to have differences. We're always going to have conflicts. It's not about just some kind of harmonious peace, but it's like. But how do we handle those conflicts? Do we handle those conflicts you know, constructively through negotiation, through dialogue, through mutual understanding, through, through negotiation, through democracy and so on? Or do we handle them destructively through, um, through war ultimately and through the risk of, of destroying the entire, everything that we care about in this world? So to me, that's, that's the choice that we face. And so for me, what I'm looking at is where's the way out? Even right now, right now, with all the terrors and the horrors that are going on right now, with the Russian tanks surrounding Kyiv, you know, in Ukraine, how how do we how do we bring it to a stop within a larger vision of a new European security and economic architecture that includes Russia, includes Ukraine? in which all can benefit. And we have a very good example of what happened at the end of World War II. We just need to kind of learn from what has worked in the past and really be creative and bring our collective intelligence to bear on this around the world. So uh, to me, we're at, a, we're at a, like, it's like an inflection point right now in history and in our evolution. And we can choose the old way, the reactive way you're talking about, the repetitive trauma-based way, or we can choose the other doorway, which is hard. This is hard work for us because, you know, it's much easier just to make that the enemy and they're the wrong and go after them and, you know, and, and, and build up, you know, you know th that path. Uh, but we know where that path leads. It, it does not lead in a good way. And so uh, this is really hard work, but I believe it can be done. And in fact, it's, it's our only choice right now to me, the only, the only, the only sensible choice, the wise choice, is to keep our hearts open, to do the trauma work, because there's so much trauma. Let me just, if I may, just, just share with you, just like, okay, like take Putin. You know, he's the principal decision maker on the other side. Um, you know, we want to just demonize him. We want to bring him up for war crimes, put him in The Hague, and that's the way to do it. You know, right now he is... He's the leader of that power. He has 6,000 nuclear weapons. Do we really want to back him into a total corner? Uh, and it's actually, you know, what's interesting is in Russia right now, his popularity is going up. It's interesting. So it's not just Putin. We're dealing with Russia and Russia's own, uh, the Russian people's own sense of insecurity. But if I go back and I look empathetically and I think, okay, Putin, how do I start? How do I influence that one mind? At first, I need to understand and then I go back and I say, I look at things like there's something that's not showing up in the media at all. It's just like, who is Putin? Where did he come from? What was he like as a child? You know, where, where all your patterns are set. He was born in Leningrad, St. Petersburg. Just a few years after a million people in, in Leningrad died as the Nazis surrounded Leningrad and was a siege and they were starving. 
His elder brother died. He had starved, died in that. His mother almost died. She was thrown as a corpse into a pile of corpses. She was, they thought she was dead. And then someone heard a sound and they pulled her out. Then he's born. That's the, that's the trauma conditions in which he's born. And so just to understand that a little bit, like, oh, okay, that's the kind of emotional mentality of, you know, hum and then to watch the humiliation of, of, of the post-Soviet order. So, he, you know, he just, he wants strength, stability, force. It's force that comes out of humiliation. So we, we need to go to the roots of this if we're going to change this phenomenon in him and in, and in the Russian people generally. Amazing. Like I, I, I completely agree. And, and I was going to say, um, I was going to say that when I hear you speak, it's, first of all, I, I think it's very beautiful how you like opened the map of the, of the current situation and also how you hold the energy of inclusion when the energy of exclusion is very strong. You know, like that we that we don't give up on those high values and on 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 that kind of inner alignment. And the other thing is, at least that's how I look at it. When, when, um, also like in intimate relationships, when you say, okay, actually we could do this and this and this and this and that. And then when you look at the real relationship dynamic, if you, even if we know that that's good, we don't do it because we fall back into these older patterns. And that's exactly where it comes into play, where what you said at the end, that we have to do the inner work that enables us to make that choice. Because otherwise, often, at least that's how I look at it, the past chooses for us. The unconscious past, the choice has been made already in the past. It doesn't have, it's a repetitive process. It doesn't have a future until we, or unless we really in, include the split of pain or the split of trauma and reintegrate it as learning into ourselves. Because when I look at, I mean, you know this, like I often say that, that the integrated history is presence. It's not behind us. It's, it's what's talking here. It's integrated history is talking. Plus, unintegrated history is the past that maybe comes up while we are talking. And so, but that, that changes a bit the whole vision of life. It's not that everything, it's, it's alive in us. And the split off part is, is history. And I think in the permafrost of what you said of, of Leningrad, Stalingrad, Berlin, like the whole Second World War, the Holocaust, there's so much, there's a, a thick permafrost and trauma layer, but in the ice is the ethical restoration that hasn't happened yet. And it's the ethical learning that we so badly need to deal with climate change, with nuclear weapons, with AI, with nanotechnology, with genetic engineering. Because if we don't harvest that learning, we can't deal with the stuff that's coming up now, that is the leading edge development now, because suddenly we have technologies at hand. Without the right ethical development, we, we're gonna, like there's a lot of potential to mess things up. And I think that I want to underline what you said at the end, because if we don't get that part, we continue choosing the separation. If I don't see that I that collectively in a large scale, on a large scale, we have to uh, do that kind of work and learn how to do that. Because otherwise we, we know what's good, like how it would be great, but we're not doing it. And your vision is already very high. Like I think what you said right now is, is holding a very high vision for the world. But how can we as a collective, not a few individuals, how can we as a collective grow into that? Because otherwise we won't make those choices. And it seems like we didn't make that choice after the Cold War as a world. We didn't choose like this. And, uh, and I think that's, 
I find it very interesting that you came back to understanding, yeah, when I when I put myself into the shoes of somebody else that I want to understand deeper, then then I need to face the fact that to see the traumatization that leads up to a certain behavior and my own also. And where I don't have that empathy, trauma is at work between us. That's it. That's exactly it. And that's the work is the work is to take what's unconscious, make it conscious to take what's disassociated and reconnect it. And, and I can see, you know, we've had, you and I have had the, I've had the benefit of learning, you know, a lot from you over our conversations in the past. And to me, it's directly relevant to this particular situation in the world today. And, and, and the practical work of how do we operationalize this? What does it mean in terms of practical actions right now, right here for, for the whole world? And, you know, uh, the one thing that I noticed in this phenomenon, even in the last week, because it's been a week now since the beginning of the invasion, you know, for me, when I've asked this question of where's the secret, what's the secret to peace here? What's the secret, not to the peace of the heavens, but, you know, the peace of peaceful ways of dealing with the conflicts that we have in the world today. Um, it's us. It's, you know, what I call the third side. It's, it's what I saw, you know, when I, as an anthropologist studying, you know, hunter-gatherer, you know, they gather, the whole community gathers around the campfire, right? And I see that happening today, right now. It's like, yes, you know, but there's a, there's a, com a worldwide community around this conflict that's saying no to violence, no to war, no to destruction. Yes to let's find ways of talking this out. Let's find solutions. Let's find ways of moving forward in a constructive way. So there's, I mean, it, it, what's interesting, and I don't think Putin realized it because he, he, you know, he uses force right now and force to me is born fundamentally out of humiliation. It's, the, it's like out of humiliation, I'm gonna force, I'm gonna force my way on you. I'm gonna force my way on the Ukrainians. What he doesn't realize is that force is strong and it can accomplish some things and who, uh, terrible things, but force in the end is weaker than power. And by power, I mean genuine power of the kind that we talk about and there's a power of unity showing up in the world today of saying, basta, enough. This cannot happen in the, in the 21st century. You know, what we're watching these scenes in Kiev and Kharkiv and Kherson and just, it's, it's not acceptable anymore. And, and, and so basically we have the beginnings of a global campfire where, and where we can, we can embrace the conflict. We can embrace Ukraine and Russia and in a, see it in a larger perspective and grad, create a container within which even the most difficult conflict can gradually be, change its form. Will it be our ultimate resolution? Who knows? But change the form from killing each other to talking with each other and finding other ways forward. And I think that's, that's, that to me gives me hope is that I don't think um, anyone anticipated the amount of unity around the world, at, not just in Europe, but in Brazil and Africa and Asia, the whole world is paying attention and is saying, we need to find a better way. And to me, this is a wake up call. So there's that, that power. And no matter how strong the forces of Russia it can never be stronger than the power of the community, the power of the whole world, the power of the third side. And that's, that's what gives me hope today. Yeah, I, I also see this, that the world shrank through the, through the technology and the data speed, like the world became smaller and suddenly everything is more intimate. And, and in this situation, I think also there is a strong kind of activation of the third side. I, I think that's very powerful. That's true power. And, and that we practice, like, how am I getting enrolled as the third side in the fragmentation? Yes. You know that, like, the third side can just join, join the fragmentation 
or it can be really a unifying force that unites the fragmentation into something higher. And here's, here's one thought that I want to run by you. Um, so I, I had a, like in one of my last training programs, um, there was a process around like East Germany. And I did, as you know, I did uh, multiple large, larger scale processes around the integration of East-West Germany. Now we are writing a proposal to, um, to file to the European Union to create an East-West integration. Because in this process, I said to somebody, you know, I have no idea how it feels to grow up in the former East Germany in former East Germany. You don't know how it is to grow up in Vienna. But the power we have is that I learn from you and you learn from me. So, and what I mean by that is that what happened is like the former East, after the war came down, the East has been pushed into the West. Like it has been absorbed. But that doesn't work. That's not a new Germany, that's kind of like Pac-Man. And, and then like what we need to do now is because we see the potential fracture in Germany, but also in Europe is still there. And, but when we learn from each other, information flows and starts creating a new Germany or a new Europe that is the integrated version of the two former sides. And I think that that has to happen in, in entire Europe because that's the only way to create an integrated Europe that is more stable. Otherwise, the, 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 the stability of Europe is not, it's not resilient, it's not grounded because it has a, a kind of a fracture inside and that can break easily. And we see it in other parts in the world where there was kind of an absorption of because there was suddenly more power and but it it doesn't put us on the same level of citizenship. Yeah. Even psychologically inside, even if we have the same rights, but there there is a, a crack. And I wanted to know what you what you hear or what you think when you hear me say that. No, I'm absolutely you and I are absolutely in agreement and resonance on this. It's like uh, the invitation right now is to learn the lesson of the way in which Germany was integrated, where the stronger side just incorporated the weaker side. Um, right now, there's an opportunity to create a new Europe, a Europe that extends all the way from the Atlantic to the Euros or to whatever, Siberia, whatever. But it's like, it's, it's, it's a Europe. It's not going to be, um, you know, everyone's saying, well, Ukraine should be part of EU or whatever. No. We have to create something new that's born, that's larger, that incorporates the best of the European community, incorporates the best of NATO, incorporates the best of Russia. And we, we, that's what's being called forth is to create something new, which is what happened, you know, at the end of World War II was, was to create the European community was, was an integrative thing, was no, this is going to going to be something larger. And, and so that's what we're being invited to do is to create something new that respects the contributions of all the players and creates some new higher order integration. And that's, that's exciting. I mean, that's really exciting. And that's what's needed. In fact, do you know, long before this war, a new European architecture, security architecture was needed. We could see it. This war just brings it in our face, but, but it's been needed for years to create a new integration, right? And, uh, and so we're at this moment, this very exciting moment where you can look the danger in the eye. You can look the danger of world apocalypse in the eye even and say, step back and say, you know, there's a world in which it could all work. It's all possible. Um, and that's the thing. When people ask me, I say, you know, after 45 years, they say, well, William, are you, 
<laughs> you wander around all these war zones. Are, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? You know, of course, I have to be an optimist in some sense to do my work. But what I like to say is I'm a possibilist. That's what I, I, I believe in human possibility. I've seen it happen with my own eyes. I saw apartheid, which everyone thought was going to go on forever, transform. I saw the end of the Cold War, which everyone thought, again, was going to go on forever. You know, I've seen these, I've, you know, in Colombia, the end of a 50-year civil war. This could happen. This could happen. And I, I know it because I'm not just saying it out of, out of belief. I've seen it happen. I've seen human beings do it. We can do this. And it will call a lot on upon us. It will be very difficult work. It's not easy. It will be, it will be, it will take sacrifice, but it is possible. And it's a world that's based not on force, which derives from humiliation, but on genuine power, which comes from humility. Third side is a power that comes from humility, the humility of being in a humus on the ground, part of the community. It's not about, it's, it, 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 there's, a, there's a humbleness to the power because it's in every one of us. And as the old African proverb goes, when spider webs unite, when spider webs unite, they can halt even a lion. If we, each of us takes our own spider webs and we unite in a giant spider web, we can halt the lion of war. That's right. Very much so. Very much so. And I think the integration that you spoke about um, is uh, a, a central piece. And it's also, I'm wondering also how, um, and then I see the time, I think we uh, already have a, <laughs> the time flies by whenever we talk, it's like we're getting into <laughs> this, it's so lovely. And, um, you know, I, I see also that the that the current world situation means also that we have to let go of some old identity structures that are not anymore serving even what you said to create this this pan-european security structure means that certain identity structures need to be able to be reconstructed or let go of in order to create a bigger system, which actually climate change is calling us on a global level, as you said, to do. But in order to do that, some identity structures need to dissolve in order to make space, like in a way be sacrificed to make space for something bigger. Like a sacrifice is like making space to allow something bigger to come in. And, and in a way, um, I'm... Like and, and the identity structures still can change, but if they are iced over, they become rigid. They can't move. So evolution bumps against this because you cannot bump against something that's fluid. And it's so beautiful what you said is like when, when there is flow, openness, fluidity, river, force cannot hit. But when there is stagnation, then the force bumps against force and it creates a counter reaction all the time. So to turn our legacy into flow, to turn frozenness into flow is the best, um, the best thing we can offer to that vision that you drew now, because that's actually what we need in order to harvest that power and not end up in force again, bumping against you know, the aftermath of the prior force. And like this, how trauma constantly reenacts itself. That's, that's it. beautiful. It's very beautiful. Uh, the, the, you know, there's a jujitsu move, like, uh, because when you, it, it, you know, the force comes and you redirect the force, right? And through, through genuine power, as you were saying, from frozenness to flow. And that's exactly it. That's, that's what we're being called upon. And what do we have to give up? You know, we have to give up our frozenness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, uh, you know, difficult sometimes because our frozenness is what we think protects us, but it doesn't really protect us. It just leads us in. Uh, so it's going to take that, that work that we, you watch so often on an individual scale, you know, of an individual starting to 
relax and welcome in the love of and compassion of others around them. And we, we, we now need to do that on a collective scale. Okay. And, and, you know, you, you know, we might have to abandon certain identities, but the truth is what in the end we're going to have is we're going to all meet our deep need for identity at the smallest scale, like little concentric circles, like little Russian dolls, all the way up to the global scale and, and beyond even. But, but it's like that's we're being invited to construct our identities, you know, on the basis of security and safety, starting in ourselves and then radiating out to a world that's safe for everyone. That's right. And, and we do need that. Like the pandemic showed us this, the current situation shows us this because the, the climate change effects are asking for a different response. Otherwise, I think we like the, all the distorted frozenness, if you respond to climate change and we are not responding anyway enough. So I think that's going to be not the resilience that is needed in order to create a safe humanity for, for our journey. Yeah, that's beautiful, William. And interestingly, let me just add one thing that I, I think that actually working on climate change actually could be one of the keys to creating this new architecture. Uh, it's not just, uh, everything gets intermeshed. But right now, so much of, of the war, you know, is about energy and where those, you know, those pipelines are going to go. And, and the world needs to move to renewable energy. And, and that could be actually, interestingly, in the larger context in which Ukraine, the war comes to an end, It's a war. It's a, it's it's a um, it's a larger context in which we move towards renewable energy and and diminish the effects of climate change. So there's a better world awaiting for us if we can take this as a wake up call. Yeah, exactly, exactly. William, it's so amazing. I'm so happy to talk to you. It's always we didn't talk for a longer time now, but it's uh, every time we come together, I feel this closeness, like the spark goes on, and like we are yeah. together in a space. Together. It's yeah. lovely. It's so resonant, and I'm I'm so much with everything you said. I mean, it speaks from my heart to listen yeah. to you. Speaks about this in my heart. So that's uh, beautiful. And if you have any any last words for this for this conversation, I know we will have others. So yeah. if there's anything you want to add. I would just say this, that every one of us is a third sider here in this play. Every one of us can activate this global social immune system that helps us transform even the most difficult, most painful conflicts. You know, we are Ukrainians, we are Russians, It's all, you know, and, and any one of us has the ability within their circle to actually activate the third side and, and keep the doors open to compassion, to love, to awareness, to witnessing, even if it's showing up and just witnessing with an open heart like you do so beautifully, Thomas, and your whole community does. That's, that's not just passive, that's act, active. And it's shifting the... It's shifting the energetic environment in which we can then find a way materially, objectively, emotionally, psychologically to begin to heal the deep traumas that produce, produce war. And that can, if we heal, and I think we can all heal, I, I honestly believe it. I've, I've been in the worst places in the world. I've seen it happen. And I can tell you it can happen. And it depends on us starting with our own work and then radiating it up to the whole world. Voila, that's right. <laughs> Beautiful, William. Thank you so much. I think we, it's, uh, many people will get a lot out of this conversation and it uh, was great. I'm looking forward to our next part of this series and, uh, and I wish you a great time. And, Thank you, Thomas. Uh, and a, a, lot of, a lot of blessing for your work. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm actually... Um, Going right now, I'm, uh, I have a little window of time and I'm going to go, I don't know if it took you in Creston to the stupa. There's a huge, a huge Buddhist stupa and they're celebrating, this is Tibetan New Year.
And, oh, beautiful. Uh, we're beautiful. Pray for the peace of uh, Ukraine. Oh, beautiful. Fantastic. So, so uh, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Thomas. Really, really appreciate it. And, uh, and I look forward to our next conversation soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.